Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware, brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Thursday, December 5, 2019. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Mr. Paul Stebbins, a founding member of, the, of an organization called Fix US, an initiative of the campaign to fix the debt. Mr. Stebbins, a graduate from Georgetown University, was a co-founder of TransTech Services in 1985. TransTech was sold to World Fuel Services Corporation in 1995, where Mr. Stebbins subsequently held the position of Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of World Fuel Services, retiring as Chairman Emeritus in 2014. World Fuel Services is an international corporation with 100 offices in 38 countries and currently ranks 83 on the Fortune 500 list. Mr. Stebbins serves as the director of Phoenix-based First Solar Incorporated, a developer and operator of the world's largest grid-connected photovoltaic power plants, producing a total of over 17 gigawatts of solar power worldwide. Mr. Stebbins is on the advisory board of the Amigos de las Americas Foundation of Houston and on the board of directors of the Silk Road Project founded by Yo-Yo Ma. He is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And most pertinent to today's discussion, Mr. Stebbins is also a member of the Leadership Council of Fix the Debt Campaign. Okay, Mr. Paul Stebbins, uh, welcome to the Lions Party After Dark podcast, and uh, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. You're good to have me, and uh, thanks to the Alliance Party for sponsoring this. And yeah, I think in today's world, if you asked any one of your neighbors or we asked anybody in our communities whether our political system is working well, I think you'd get sort of a, a universal sense of despair and exhaustion among most folks that something's broken in our system. And the Fix US group is uh, basically a group of Americans who are united in a shared concern that over the you know, the divided state of our country, we need to heal these divides or we will never get any big problems fixed. And right now, that sense of division and hostility and polarization that seems to animate and form our political discourse has got people really feeling alienated. And I came to this journey uh, through the national debt issue. So it's a bit of a, a story of I was a, an entrepreneur who founded a global company and I'm, I'm in many ways, I'm the American dream. You know, so a guy who got into Georgetown and worked his way through school and, you know, worked at gas stations and underground in a mine and drove lumber trucks and waited tables, was able to get through Georgetown and graduate and, and have a career. But my journey kind of took a strange accident when I applied to business schools and got rejected both uh, times twice in a row. I then started a business and that turned into World Fuel eventually. And uh, we built a global enterprise. But part of that journey uh, through World Fuel was to become part of something called the Business Roundtable, which is a, a high level group of Fortune 100 companies that spend time in Washington being educated on issues of policy. So we spend time with the White House. We spend time with the uh, members of Congress. And in those conversations, uh, one of our members got very interested in the national debt issue. And that was Dave Cody. Dave Cody was the then chairman of Honeywell. And Dave sat on something called the Simpson-Bowles Commission. This was the commission that President Obama had commissioned, uh, chaired by uh, Alan Simpson and Erskine Bowles, the former White House Chief of Staff. Alan Simpson was a senator from Wyoming, Republican. And they chaired something uh, called the Commission for uh, Respons you know, Fiscal Responsibility. 
And in that uh, journey, we came to the conclusion that the debt was sort of this looming iceberg out there that threatened to disrupt the ship of state, and that most of our political activities were kind of all about managing the deck chairs on uh, on the Titanic, when in fact, if we couldn't get our fiscal house in order, we would have really serious problems down the road. So Dave Cody came to the business roundtable and said, look, guys, I don't think we're really paying attention. Here we are, supposedly the business leaders of the United States, and we're not engaged in this issue. In fact, everybody in this room has probably got a K Street office that's part of perhaps the pathology. So you've got people getting their own tax exemptions. You've got people paying attention to their own interests. But meanwhile, you've got this increasing national debt, which begins to threaten the very foundation of the political experiment itself. So why don't we engage and pay attention? And you'd say, well, why is the debt that important? Well, when you look at the fact that, you know, our debt to GDP after World War II was the highest it's ever been in its history, which was about 107% debt to GDP. And as recently as 2007, our debt to GDP was 37%. And all of a sudden, here we are today at 78% debt to GDP. And within 10 years, we'll be at well over 108%. And in the next 50 years, we could be over 200% debt to GDP, which is pretty astonishing. So I would say that the members of the business community began to wake up and say, gosh, geez, we probably have a duty of care to be more reflective about this issue and we should engage. So along that journey, I decided uh, that this was a pretty important issue and it prompted me ultimately to kind of quit my day job. So I went to my board and said, look, I've had 30 years of a great run. I'm the luckiest guy ever born alive. I helped build a global company with my partner. But there's some issues that are eating at the fabric of our country that I think uh, merit our attention. And in fact, business has been part of the problem. You know, we, we have been not paying attention as well. And it reminds me of uh, the old Mary Oliver poem. You know, I don't know what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention. And I think one of the things that occurred to me in that journey was we're not paying enough attention to these deeper foundational issues. So I, I left uh, my job as a corporate person and I became more informed about the national debt. And that took me on a journey of talking to communities around the country about the national debt. And it's one thing to go into a room and say, look, there are all these drivers of the national debt. You've got an aging population. You've got a, a highly inefficient tax code. You've got about 70% of your budget now year to year is completely non-discretionary. It is linked to healthcare issues, interest on the national debt, and they are all escalating, outpacing uh, the growth of the economy itself. And you, you're now down to a situation where only about 30% of your annual budget is discretionary and 50% of that is defense. And what happens now is you've got a, a circumstance where if you went back to the 1970s, about 70% of our budget was discretionary and the rest was mandatory. But the mandatory spending is accelerating at such a pace that it begins to make it increasingly difficult to have any choices about how you actually spend your money. So when you analyze that in some detail, uh, you get into issues of both the revenue side and the spending side. And of course, depending on where you are on the partisan spectrum, everybody's got their own particular hobby horse. And at that time, when we were talking about the national debt, if you will, the way we framed that debate was you had uh, the right which was basically saying no taxes under no circumstances, let's not talk about it. You had Grover Norquish that was all about the pledge and you had to sign that pledge and never discuss the word tax. And on the, on the left side, you had people saying that, look, entitlements is something that is all about whether or not 
these mean, evil people are going to throw grandma into the snow. And if you dare threaten entitlements or talk about reform, you're going to get a thousand postcards sent to every home in Florida, basically telling you that you're threatening the future of, of our aging population. Both of those arguments are highly disingenuous, but it gives you an insight into what was going on in terms of the partisan divide and the way that the narrative began to dominate the conversation. So the political ideological narrative made it very difficult for people to get to the heart of the real issues and solve the problem. And I watched up close because at that time, uh, the Tea Party had come in in 2010, the, Bishop, the Simpson-Bowles Commission had finished up its work at the end of uh, 2010 and early 11. And then the negotiations began to happen between President Obama and John Boehner about how do we actually resolve this? How do we do some sort of a grand bargain that would change the trajectory of our spending, uh, stabilize and reform our entitlements so that we protected the most vulnerable in our society, but made them stable for the long term. And we would also do uh, comprehensive tax reform that would allow the United States to be more competitive by reducing rates and expanding our base. And the most significant part of that was to get rid of something we call expenditures. In normal parlance, that's what we know as loopholes. But the expenditures represent a huge part of the budget. So as this debate went on, I went around the country talking to communities about this urgent need for us as citizens to engage in this conversation. And what I had, what I learned when I was out there doing those uh, conversations, and I'm talking Galena, Illinois, and Brownsville, Texas, and you know Walla Walla, Washington, and Denver, Colorado, all sorts of community citizens would get engaged and they would show up and it didn't matter where they were on the political spectrum. It really didn't matter whether they thought Obama was great or hated Obama. The issue was what happened to my country? How could we know this much about an issue this serious that so threatens the long-term viability of our ex political experiment? How can we know all that and not get anything done? How come we send people to Washington and they're supposed to do their job by getting in a room and fixing these problems? And all I hear is screaming and yelling and name calling. And what we found, uh, what most citizens I found, regardless of where they were in the political spectrum, there was a sense of, I am sick and tired of this. I have to do my job. And in my job, in my community, in my life, I don't hate my neighbor. I don't you know, refuse to take their kids to school because of their political affiliation. I help them whether, you know, they're a Republican or Democrat. When I stop to help somebody change their tire on the side of the road, I don't ask them who they voted for. And when I think about my day-to-day -day life, I compromise with my boss, with my supplier, my customer, my neighbor. I compromise with my teenage kid to clean their room. I compromise with my spouse. And yet you guys back there in Washington can't sit in a room and compromise on anything. And so I hear people screaming on television from the cable channels that offer me a false choice. They're asking me to pick a side in a fight I don't even understand anymore. And nobody's asked me one thing about what I really care about. And the reality is you people up there in Washington don't know the first darn thing about my life and you're not even curious. You've already decided that you need me as an advocate in whatever fight it is you're trying to wage. And meanwhile, I want to solve problems. I want to get on with my life and I'm sick and tired of it. And I began to hear that over and over around the country, which is to say the debt wasn't the key issue. We had a much more profound uh, issue going on, and it was economic, political, and social. You had growing concerns about a globalized world, and where do I fit? And we've got a huge changing economy, and I don't know what the future of my role is going to be. I don't know what the future of work is going to be. 
I don't know what the future of technology is going to be. I'm frustrated by the lack of upward mobility. I see lots of tech geniuses who've got their ranch in New Zealand and they can get away anytime they want, but most of us have to stay here and get on with our lives. But I am I'm finding that my, my sort of, uh, my covenant with the American dream is beginning to be compromised. And I'm feeling more and more like this is a system that is rigged against me and I don't have a role. And, and there are no innocents. Both sides are doing this. And both, when I go to see them and ask them what the problem is, they just blame the other guy. And I don't like that. The political issues were that the incentives were perverse. So we used to have a system where there were incentives to actually cross the aisle and work with your colleague to solve a problem. And now we have an increasingly fractious system because you've got a primary system where only 14% of eligible voters show up in primaries. And those tend to be the true ideological believers. And what's happened perversely is that over the many years, over the last 40 years, you've gone from having a House of Representatives that had many competitive districts, probably about 100, and you're now down to over 86% of the House has got safe districts. They've been gerrymandered to secure the viability of one candidate or the other. And so what it means is that if your true believer can survive the primaries, they go automatically to a general election and they and they're basically there's very little contest. So we've increasingly sent a pipeline of ideologues to a system that's designed to compromise. And that is not conducive to the welfare of the public when in fact you've got to solve problems because ideology is a very poor substitute for responsible governance right? Advocacy is not the same as governance. And partisanship is definitely not the same as citizenship. So you've got broken political system where the combination, the unholy, you know, combination of primary systems that is feeding ideologues, gerrymandering, which has been done by state legislatures, which are political by nature, have made it increasingly difficult for anybody who is sort of more problem or problem solving oriented or moderate in their disposition to survive. And in fact, there are 46 states that have something called a sore loser law, which means if you lose as a moderate to the ideologue in the primary, then you are not allowed by law to run in the general election which makes it even more difficult for people to want to get into the system. So the political process is broken. You add to it the, the incredible complexity of money and politics. I mean, we're about to enter a 2020 uh, situation in which you'll spend $2 billion to an elected president. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. So the partisan industrial complex is basically driving the show. Then you get to the social and cultural things, which are even more complex. We live in a very polarized media environment where a student out of a journalism school, pretty much to get a job, you've got to pick a side. If you don't pick a side, then you're not going to have a viable you know, career in the journalist and industry. The revenue model of journalism and advertising is all designed to perpetuate the fight. So it's much more interesting to keep the fight alive because that generates revenue than it is to actually have informed discourse, civil discourse, responsible, careful exchange of ideas about problem solving. That is not rewarded in our society right now in terms of journalism. Then you add to it the recent, uh, you know, ascendancy of social media, where instead of it being uh, a tool that in the very beginning was all about getting to know people, sharing your, your life with friends, turned into this massive machine where you now have what you call sort of the grandstanding mentality. So anybody can get on social media and they can accelerate and amplify their views with impunity and they can do it with anonymity and they can cause a fight, they can attack, they can have all sorts of people cheering for either side and they can do it with relative lack of accountability 
and things can go viral very quickly, as we all know. So you now have a social media climate, which also perpetuates and exacerbates this very unhealthy uh, pattern of attack and demonization and diminishment and ridicule. And there's very little effort to build uh, bonds across the aisle. So from a social media point of view, that was difficult. Then you add to it the, the demographic separation of people, the idea that uh, race is still a deep and perpetuated problem in our country. You add to the sense of what's going on with immigration and you get strange statistics like the people most concerned about immigration are the ones who don't actually have immigrants in their communities. So there's a lot of misinformation and a declining sense of confidence. And then you add to it the digital world in which we no longer communicate very well. Everybody's stuck to a device and you get sort of a learned autism, which has infected a whole next generation of, of people where the, the traditional bonds of community, where we used to communicate with each other, whether that was through faith or through uh, your civic community center, those things have uh, basically didn't, been diminished. And we now face a situation where people are increasingly alienated. The institutions they used to have faith in in this country, which included you know a functioning government, a business community that really had a duty of care to be a larger part of uh, the fabric of society society. It was not just about uh, short-term quarterly results and instant uh, returns to the shareholder. It wasn't about having uh, your, your company hijacked by you know hedge fund investors who can very quickly hold you hostage to take the cash out of your company or leverage up your balance sheet. All sorts of issues on the social side began to be very clear. So I realized that we're now sitting in a situation where the debt was only exhibit A of a much more profound issue. So the debt is the thing that becomes a Rosarch test for how we spend our, you know, how, what we value in society. What do we collectively want to spend time on, you know, and, and resources on in society? So the debt is very important. And if we leverage ourselves into infinity, then it's just going to simply reduce the number of choices that we have as a society to invest in the things that we think we need, whether it's R&D or education or infrastructure or all the, edu- you know, all the things that we think are long-term important to the viability of the country are being short-shifted because we now have this massive debt, which is looming ahead of us and no resolution in sight. And one of the scariest things about that is interest. Now, right now, interest is something like six, seven percent of the budget each year, but it's quickly growing to be about 11 percent. And what happens if we even have a, a, you know, a change of one point in interest rates? This could end up being, you know, a trillion dollars very quickly. And so imagine a budget where 30 percent of your budget becomes interest on the debt. This would be a profound impact on the economy, and it begins to impact wages. It begins to impact your auto loans. It begins to it begins to impact your educational student debt. It impacts your home mortgage. It has lots of very real life consequences about those of us who are just trying to get by in society. So the so the broken political system became a much more important issue. And if you go out and talk to communities around this country, you find that a very large percentage of people just no longer have any confidence in the institution of governance itself. And there's a great deal of frustration that I signed up for my part of the American dream. And if I was, you know, if I behaved fairly, if I played by the rules, if I kept my nose clean and did a good job, I could have a piece of the American dream and I would be assured a future. And now that's no longer something that people believe. They have a great deal of anxiety about the future, and they don't know where they fit. There's a very interesting uh, social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who I found in this journey because as a business guy, when I first got into this issue, I thought, well, 
if we just fixed all the structural reform stuff, you know, it's really fundamentally an engineering problem. So let's just fix the money in politics. Let's fix the primary system. Let's get ranked choice voting. Let's do whatever it takes to reduce the gerrymandering. But when you get into the deeper social issues, you realize that there are these psychological factors that are driving the polarization. So why is it that people need feel the need to join a tribe against another tribe. It's because the transcendent idea that we all bought into as Americans, as part of our American story, which was the e pluribus unum, out of many, we were one. This was a great political experiment. It was unique in the history of the world. And it was all about the common cause to be part of this American experiment. But of all the collective institutions, which in their aggregate represent that American experiment, and they begin to fail, well, you leave me no place to go but to retreat to my tribe. So this emergence of this profound kind of tribal instinct begins to take over. And that becomes a very unhealthy uh, thing. So if you read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt or look at any of the work that he's done on the studies, these become deep and profoundly troubling phenomena inside our society. So we began to think about, well, okay, if these things are going on, it's not just about the debt. We'll never fix the debt or any other major issue in this country if we cannot restore some sense of common story, some sense of common American enterprise, if we can begin to restore some sort of common trust in the collective well-being or common good of the American experiment. And that is not an easy thing to do, but that's what we set out to do with Fix US. Because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that instinctive people don't trust what's happening. And if you look at some of the reports that were done by the Mormon Common Group, which is based in New York, they did a very interesting report called Hidden Tribes. And instead of the conventional political nomenclature that we all grew up with, left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, and Republican, they actually did a much deeper dive into the value systems that made people believe in the country. And it's far more nuanced than just those old sort of blunt instruments that define. And it talked about, are you engaged? Are you secular? Are you cosmopolitan? What's your sense of anger at the establishment? Are you retired or are you young? Are you interested in rational compromise or are you cautious? Do you trust compromise? Are you ideological? or not ideological? Are you distrustful of institutions or do you believe in them? Where are you on the income scale? Where is your sense of civic mindedness? Are you by definition, you know, by disposition, are you a pessimist? Are you from a religious faith? All of these more nuanced things are part of what make up the political decision-making in this country, but none of the polling and certainly not the partisan apparatus have understood that very well. So what happens is the most illiberal instincts the most illiberal instincts have hijacked the partisan complex. So if you think about the traditional values that used to animate and inform the way we thought about uh, politics in this country, you had progressivism, which used to mean pluralism. It was diversity. It was inclusion. There was a generosity associated with that value construct. But in its most illiberal form, it's some limousine liberal lecturing you about bathrooms in North Carolina or some other issue that's important to them. So people say, well, gosh, I like the core value, but I don't like the most illiberal doctrinaire version of that value system. In social conservatism, it might have been community or faith. But if it turns into Grover Norquist lecturing you about Planned Parenthood or tax policy, it becomes a very illiberal, judgmental, ideological instinct that's very unforgiving. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for anything in the gray area. And then if you think about libertarianism, which in its, you know, in its most foundational form was Edmund Burke, or it was Alexis de Tocqueville, or it was moral sentiments by 
by Adam Smith, or even Frederick Douglass, who talked about, you know, I'll work with anybody to do right. But if that becomes a political machine that says all government fails, no government role should be allowed, you end up with a highly ideological value system that sort of hijacks the system. So people instinctively are suspicious of ideology. They don't like highly doctrinaire, very judgmental, highly illiberal versions of these things because they don't recognize it in their day-to-day lives. Things are far more nuanced and complex. So Fix Us was an exercise to say, look, why don't we begin to look at the root causes of how this went off the rails? Part of it is structural. Part of it is what you do with the primary system and the gerrymandering and the electoral process and ranked choice voting and access to voting and money in politics. There's a whole landscape that we began to discover this in that world. But the most interesting thing was there's not a lot of networking or coordination or cross-fertilization or sharing of best practices among all of those efforts on a state-by-state basis. So the first thing we set out to do is let's begin to organize and begin to give a sort of, if you will, a safe harbor to network all of these efforts to change some of the structural reform. The second thing we began to work on is what would be the idea of America? If you were to reconstruct an American narrative that was relevant for today, and by this I don't mean some nostalgic, you know, happy days, American graffiti, 1950s, Ike Eisenhower kind of nostalgia, but I mean an American founding father's concept that's relevant for today. America 2.0, that actually has a relevance and a significance for citizens who live in this country today. The other thing we began to think about was what would policy look like if you finally could begin to build channels of compromise around some of these complex issues? That would be an important thing to do. What if we began to commission the research papers that documented who are the best thinkers in this space? So what is Jonathan Haidt writing about? What is Yuval Levin writing about? What are uh, Jonas Goldberg writing about? What are some of these uh, thinkers about these deeper foundational Uh, problems inside the culture, what are they thinking about? What are some of the leading advocates of culture doing? Look at the work that Yo-Yo Ma was actually doing with his idea of culture is the currency of trust, right? How do you restore trust in your neighbor, in your institutions, and in your common humanity? That's a very important conversation to have when people are feeling stressed and angry and outside it. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, I had occasion to talk to a guy named Admiral Mike Mullen. Uh, and Admiral Mullen had been the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when I first got to know him at the Business Roundtable. But we shared, a, we were in, he was doing a panel at the Harvard Club in New York. But at a coffee break, I asked him, I said, Admiral, what do you think are the greatest threats to the United States? He said, well, that's easy. I'll tell you exactly what they are. And he listed what he perceived to be the four greatest threats to the viability of the United States. One, the failure of K through 12 education. Number two, fiscal irresponsibility, that there's no way that we would be generate or protect and defend the United States of America if we were fiscally irresponsible and we had massive amounts of debt and that made us vulnerable in a, in a complex interrelated world. Three, he talked about energy independence. And by that, he didn't just mean oil. What he meant was fertile soil fresh water, because this is where the wars of the future will be fought over. It will be massive human migration due to drought. And what do we do about that as a society? And how do we think about that as America's leadership role in the world? And the fourth thing he talked about was political dysfunction. If our political systems are perceived to be broken, if they are incapable of solving any large major problems, then we've got a serious disconnect in our country and it threatens the viability of the very experiment itself. What's interesting about Admiral Mullen's comments is that there's some historical context on this. 
Think about George Washington, the founder of our company, of our country. When he stood up in 1796 and gave his farewell address, he said that this fragile experiment in self-government, this extraordinary thing called the United States of America, will be threatened. Its viability will be threatened by four things. One, hyperpartisanship. Two, foreign intervention in our domestic affairs. Number three, fiscal irresponsibility. And number four, the failure to have civic education and tell our story. And when you think about where we are today as a country, how well are we doing on those four things? We live in an extremely hyper-partisan, ferociously partisan environment, which just shouts down anybody who disagrees and makes it impossible to compromise on anything without being punished at the polls by a primary fight. You've got foreign intervention in our domestic affairs, both cyber as well as real, physical. Three, our fiscal irresponsibility, our debt's at an all-time high and is, and is careening out of control. And ironically, we have a trillion-dollar deficit this year. And here we have, you know, a Republican administration where, you know, 60% of the current deficit was legislated in the last two years. And I don't mean that as a strictly partisan comment as a, you know, Democrat-Republican. It just happens to be a fact that both sides have abandoned the concept that we actually have a duty of care to be fiscally responsible. And that should be deeply troubling to every single American, regardless of what party you are affiliated with. It has nothing to do with partisanship. It has to do with being responsible. And then when you look at the absence of civic education, I think that all of us share a great concern that we've got a whole generation of young people who are not told the story of our country. They don't know what separations of powers even means. They don't understand why the political experiment called America was so important. They don't understand why that political experiment has been given birth to so much enormous success in the world. And yet it is threatened and we don't even tell the story. So it's no surprise, it should be no surprise to Americans that if you are failing on your partisanship, you're failing on your fiscal responsibility, we're not teaching the next generation or talking about the story of America, then it's no wonder that things aren't working well. So I think we have a duty of care to think uh, more deeply about these issues as a society. I think we need to be listening more carefully or to back to Mary Oliver, we should be paying a lot more attention to what's actually going on out there. And the thing is, it's not as if uh, there's any magic wand. I, you know, I think there's a, there's a great misunderstanding among Americans that there's some Wizard of Oz that's going to make this all better. And there is no Wizard of Oz. And in the story of the Wizard of Oz, you remember that the, the lion, the tin man, the scarecrow, they're looking for the heart, the brain, and the courage in their lives. Well, the heart, the brain, the courage that it's going to take to save our country is not sitting with the Wizard of Oz in Washington, D.C. It isn't going to be Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or anybody else. And regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, the heart, the brain, the courage to change things in this country starts in our communities. And we can go home anytime we want. We're all feeling politically homeless. We don't understand the screaming and yelling on both sides. We deeply resent this, this ideological warfare that seems to have hijacked every discourse. We're made very uncomfortable by that, but we want to solve problems. And the reality is we can click our heels, our ruby slippers, and go home anytime we want, but it's going to retire. It's going to require that we begin to see each other as human beings. We begin to restore some faith in our basic community ability. We begin to get ourselves some sense of individual agency in this process. Right now, most citizens feel that they have no agency whatsoever in this process. 
They have to, they go, you know, they got to pick up their kid at five o'clock for soccer. They got to get to their second job. They've got a kid with 120,000 in debt. They've got a grandparent living in the basement with a healthcare issue that's very expensive. And none of these issues are being solved. And so what are you supposed to do as a citizen? You're supposed to stop your life and raise $100 million and run for Senate and go to a system that's broken? So how do you as a citizen exercise your sense of agency? And I think what most Americans that I have talked to around this country in the last couple of years are saying is, don't treat me like a child. I'm an adult. I can handle the tough problem. I'm sick and tired of you telling me that it's just, if it weren't for that other guy or other gal across the aisle, everything would be just fine. I don't buy that. I don't buy that one bit. And most people are sick and tired. They're exhausted. The great majority of Americans are just tired of it. And they would love to engage and they would like to demand better of their public process. And so we set out to build an organization that was national in scope, that would give people a place to go with that frustration, that would allow them to participate on a local and community level and having those conversations in their communities and then holding our public officials accountable. And ultimately, regardless of where they are on the partisan spectrum, you have a duty of care to engage in these issues in a workmanlike way. And we need to create some cover for these political people so that they are not vulnerable to the traditional issue of being primaried if they go off the ideological reservation. You want to begin to reward the problem solvers. So that's where all this started. You know, and it's, you know, if you remember, Hubert Humphrey used to say years ago that Washington, D.C. is 26 square miles surrounded by reality. And I think that's true. You know, reality is out here. Reality is with us as citizens. And we've got more power than we've been led to believe. And I think that we should exercise it. And Fix Us was all about activating that so that we don't fall under the trap of the Federalist Papers, you know, Madison 10, when we were warned, you know, that the uh, that the fortunes and the interesting to the human passions have, you know, divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity, and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their common good. They wrote that in 1787, and they were right. So if we spend all of our time fighting each other and we forget the common good, we are really doomed. And I think that, you know, it's, it's deeper, too, when you think about Abraham Lincoln in 1861, when he said, we can succeed only by concert. It is not can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. That was in 1861, in the middle of a civil war. And there are a lot of people who believe today that we are also in the midst of a kind of civil war. And the only way that we can reunite this country is to get out, get over ourselves, disenthrall ourselves from all this ideological purity and give a sense of agency back to our citizens and take back control. That's what Fix Us is about. I hope that helps you, Dan, with giving you a sense of what started our journey. That's very, very good. I, I really enjoy listening to that. It's, um, it's interesting that... Um, I was writing down questions as you were talking, questions I was going to ask. And then uh, before I could even finish writing down the question, you're already answering it. So <laughs> I, I do have some questions. Just real quickly here, though, uh, we've been talking to Mr. Paul Stebbins, who is a member of the Leadership Council of the Fix the Debt campaign. And we will be back right after this short break. The two-party system that we've got is broken. The choices are awful. All we see is lies, cheating, deceit. You could say it about both parties. Neither one really stands for anything except acquiring and exercising power. The idea was to give the power to the people or the people who've given the power away. 
And that's where the system broke. Government and our political system was designed to be malleable, you know, not rigid, not ossified, not always gridlocked. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely, and that's why the founders set the system up to avoid having concentrated power in the executive and in the national branch. The founding documents are the best, it's the best government so far that we've come up with. Um, we're just not doing it. You know, it's tribalism, basically. If, if you're not on my tribe, then you're a bad person. You could say the sky is blue, and I'm going to say, no, it's green. I think it's right out of a 1930s era playbook where if you can divide people, make them feel like something's being taken from them, probably pays well for them to make sure that everybody's divided because, in essence, it keeps them in office, it keeps them in power, it keeps them employed. The amount of money that's involved in politics, it is crazy. And Obama's a smart guy, but not even he could, uh, he wasn't going to do it either. And I was like, okay, that's it. If he can't do it, it's not going to happen because uh, that's when I knew that the, uh, the lobbyists and the corporate interests, uh, the outside private interests that really have a hand in making sure that our political system doesn't work, uh, I knew that they had won. And I said, okay, third party is the way to go. What I think we're trying to do here is, is to make systemic change. Yeah, we need the right people, but there's not any one person, any one charismatic personality that's going to bring about the change that we so desperately need in this country. Our biggest goals are election reform. Knock down those barriers that have been built in the ballot access game by the state governments. Fixing the dark money. Getting good health care out there. We need more women. We need more minorities. We need more occupations and backgrounds. We don't have set paradigms and beliefs. We just want to solve problems. So we're open books. We're data sensitive. We want data. And we want to solve solutions that help the most people. Let's forget about where we disagree. Let's start with where do we agree? Let facts be facts and let truth be truth and afford people the opportunity to go and find the information they need. We require term limits of all of our candidates. Now, if you have more choices and competition, uh, just like any free market enterprise, competition is going to give you a better product. Focus on innovation and really learning on a local level. Free press and educating people in an unbiased way. Protecting and, and controlling the deficit. Respect and courtesy. Honesty through transparency. Openness and transparency. Transparency. I think that's incredibly important uh, in a number of areas, but especially in finances, so that voters can connect the dots. We want to leave this place in a better condition than we left it for the next generations, pure and simple. Not just my children, all our American kids. We need to educate every single individual in this country. So every individual has tools they need to succeed in life. Ultimately, that's what we're doing this for, what we can help the American people be, not what we say they can be, but what they want to be, and we'll get our party to that point. We're supposed to help each other rise up, enlighten each other, and start by being civil and respecting other people's opinions. There's nobody left. We have to do it. There's right and there's wrong. <laughs> nobody owns it. You know, JFK, I believe, was quoted as saying something to the effect of we don't need to look for the Republican answer or the Democratic answer. We need to look for the correct answer. And that's the types of conversations we're not having. As a people, are we doing what we should be doing? We're back. We've been talking with Mr. Paul Stebbins, who, among other things, is a member of the Leadership Council of the Fix the Debt campaign. Mr. Stebbins is here with us this evening to not only talk about our national debt, 
But all of the issues in our government and society that has brought us to our current challenging political situation. But all is not lost because, you know, we're also talking about all the wonderful things that people are doing to help fix the problem. So let's start with an observation. Uh, <clears throat> if you notice in a lot of the elections these days, you see that uh, they always come out very, very close to being 50-50. And it always kind of confused me as how could that happen? You know, statistically, how does it happen to be that close that often? And it turns out, I think what's happening is that uh, you know, the powers that be are so busy splitting apart everybody and uh, making, um, you know, separating everybody into two different tribes. They do a very good job of marketing those tribes and marketing all the issues that they manufacture to separate people. And it just turns out you get one marketing group working against another marketing group. They split the pie 50, 50. So pretty much what's happened. And, you know, and, and to your point, you know, Dan, it requires a displacing narrative, you know, right now the, 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 you know, the airspace is being controlled by a narrative, which is highly divisive and highly simplistic. You know, I'm, I'm the graduate of a, of a, you know, a Georgetown education. I was, you know, a kid from Connecticut. I was not a Catholic, but I ended up at Georgetown. And one of the things the Jesuits teach you, which is very interesting, is that faith is not about certainty. It's about humility and doubt. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you should be very suspicious of cheap clarity. And we live in a world where we are pandered to with the cheap clarity of simple answers, quick fix, bumper sticker politics and 30 second clips. And it's all about mm -hmm. either demonizing the other person or reducing all of your world's problems to something very simple. And I don't buy it for a minute. And I don't think most citizens buy it, Dan. I think most citizens out there are deeply suspicious of the cheap and easy answer. But in the absence of a displacing narrative where they have some way to engage in the complexity, where they're treated like an adult, you end up with this marketing effort that so diminishes our civil discourse, right? And I think what people want is when you talk about civil discourse, it sounds sort of theoretical and, you know, very high-minded. What they really want is a little bit of humility, sense of humor, and grace back in the civil public space. Like what happened to humor? What happened to humility? What happened to doubt? What happened to simple grace in our communication with each other? And those were the enlightenment values that built the American experiment. It wasn't rigid ideological certitude. It was scientific method. It was Lincoln versus Douglas debate. We actually loved and engaged and welcomed, you know, constructive discourse. But if everybody is barking like a very scared dog at the top of their lungs about their the ideological purity, you end up with this sorting. But what's interesting is that you now have a situation where well over 60% of the population self-identifies when polled as unaffiliated. They may be registered with a party, but they self-identify as unaffiliated because those party, whatever those parties symbolize, is no longer adequate to capture the nuance of what they feel as a frustrated citizen. That's why the Hidden Tribes report was so interesting. For the first time, it began to get into the deep complexity around that. But what's ironic is that if you look at the Hidden Tribes report, about 8% on the left, which is what they call the progressive activists, and about 6% on the very far right called the committed conservatives. They're the ones who have no humility, no curiosity. They're very authoritarian in their instinct in terms of their disposition ideologically. They have no interest in, in having a conversation. They've got a very certain view of the world and they are very loud. They've got a lot of money and they've got a big megaphone. 
And what happens is everybody else in the middle just doesn't have the energy to scream that loud or fight that hard. So they tend to kind of retreat from the process. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there suggests that that is a market of frustration that is to be tapped. People do want to engage. They just don't like the fact that the only way that they can radicalize or or actualize their interest is in this partisan uh, framework. They just don't trust it. Yeah, and I think that uh, that speaks volumes to um, the loss in uh, trust that people have for the system out there. Um, you know, lost not only in trust of our politicians, but also in the institutions. And uh, ironically, the politicians have done a lot to undermine that trust just uh, in pursuit of their own um, goals, I suppose, or lack, pursuit of power, for lack of a better term. Um, well, it's an interesting thing because if you ask, uh, you know, you know, when when Mullen says, uh, you know, the fourth great threat is political dysfunction, there's an interesting argument to be made that perversely, ironically, the political system, as bad as it is, is actually highly functional. It's responding very, very acutely, surgically almost, to the incentives, right? So if all the incentives are about who pays the money for your campaign, which in Congress is every two years. And, you know, when I went to work in Congress as an intern back when I was in college, the congressional race of the guy that I worked for was $75,000 in his first term and $150,000 in his second. That same district today is a $15 million race, $15 million race. So you think about what's happened to uh, what it requires to serve in Congress when you've got, you know, remember the old thing people used to say, look, you know, I don't like the bums. So I'm going to throw the bums out and send somebody new to take their place and they're going to do it what I want. But the problem is those people who come, the new person who comes to D.C. has got the exact same people sitting in their reception area. And they're saying, mm-hmm. are you on the reservation or off the reservation? And if you're not on the reservation, then we're going to make it very difficult for you to get reelected because we can target all the money in your primary fight. So I don't want to hear about compromise. I want to hear about your orthodoxy on these ser- series of issues, which are very important to us. So most citizens are saying, well, yeah, but that's not really common sense. I mean, take entitlement reform, which is such a hot issue. Here it is. You've got Social Security. The Social Security program of the United States is going to default in 2033. Mm -hmm. You're going to use up the reserves and we're going to default. And that means that in the absence of some response to this crisis, which everybody knows is coming, not one person on Capitol Hill knows this is not coming, but that crisis is coming. But in the absence of some solution, everybody's Social Security from Paul Stebbins, who lives in New York and Miami, and grandma who lives in, you know, inner city Baltimore, are both going to have a 23% cut in their benefits. Now, that's unconscionable when you consider that we know enough about how to actually fix it. You'll be very interested to know one of the things that the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, who's our host organization, did in service of some of the debt research. They ran an interactive uh, online fix the Social Security type drill. You could go on and problem solve Social Security. So what they did was they got a bipartisan all across the spectrum politically, people to go online, just citizens, to look at the 80-something items that would in their aggregate be the collective fix for how you would actually fix and stabilize Social Security for the long run. And which is what's very interesting is there's a 92% convergence of how to solve it among citizens who went on and interactively decided to pick from the various line items and solve it. However, 
in the second test, what they did was they went through all those 80 something line items and they put an R or a D in front of each of the sponsored things and the convergence dropped to 30%. That's the lack of trust. Given their own common sense, people will solve the problem. Larry Diamond, a professor at the Hoover Institute, did a fascinating study just recently that he finished in Dallas, Texas, where they got 500 people for these were hardcore right, hardcore left, got them in a room, great deal of emotion and animosity, a great deal of distrust, a great deal of mimicking and parroting of the common social media narrative that they'd heard about the other side. And at the end of two days, It was astonishing how much convergence of interest there were, how much sense of common humanity was, and how many problems were imminently solvable if normal citizens of this country were given an opportunity to sit in a room and they were curated some very basic information about these issues, including their costs and how they work and what the current status quo is and what some of the variable uh, solutions might be to it that have been discussed widely. And it is amazing how quickly American citizens left to their own devices All of a sudden, their hatred for the person across from them, who they are absolutely sure is the demon incarnate, when they actually get to know that they own the same kind of boat, their kids have the same kind of problems, they've got the same sorts of issues at their PTAs and in their community centers, they've got the same sort of aspirations for the future of their country, they want to be part of a larger story, they want their individual story to be part of a larger story, they feel betrayed by a system and they're acting it out in their politics, but you put them in a room and get to know each other, it is amazing how much convergence there is. People don't hate each other in this country, but if you turn on any major media outlet, they've convinced us. The American narrative is we're in a Mm -hmm. state of absolute civil war. Everybody hates each other. Nobody can go to Thanksgiving dinner and have a normal conversation. This is madness. This is madness, and we are buying into this. I remember there's a great, uh, you may remember Boris Pasternak, who was famous for Dr. Shivago, but he's the author of that book. But I'm paraphrasing, but there's a great line in his book, Shivago, where he talks about our sin is our toleration. We actually have come to tolerate this as passing for civil discourse. It is unconscionable. And we've become so diminished. So as a people, it's like deeply insulting. And at the end of the day, look, I'm back to Alfred North Whitehead. who used to say, seek simplicity, but you better distrust it. If it's that simple, it's probably a lie. So things are complex. Everybody knows that from their daily life. The daily life is complex. Getting through the day is complex. So if you're going to try to sell me this cheap clarity and pass that off as informed public policy, the hell with you. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I won't stand for it anymore. As a citizen, I want to be engaged and I will not pass for that anymore. I think that's the deeper issue of awakening on the political reality of this country. People want better because if you if you don't feel you have any agency, and as to your point, Dan, if all the institutions have failed me, if Wall Street blew up the world and government can't even have, a, they can't fix any single issue, the legislative turnout's at an all-time low, all I hear is screaming, the media are a bunch of liars, all they do is take a side in the fight and then they pay journalists to advocate for that side. Education is failing my kids, they can't get a job, globalization makes it difficult, I don't know where I fit in the story, we no longer even teach it. If you're feeling that way, you feel pretty alone. You feel pretty frustrated. You feel pretty marginalized. You feel pretty left out of the, of the conversation. So no wonder they don't participate in voting. I mean, look at Florida. Florida, where I happen to live part of my life, in the midterm elections, which was the big holy moly, we've got the 20, you know, the 18 election, everybody paying attention, highest turnout ever. Well, 4 million people showed up on both sides of that debate. As you said, 50-50, very close. 
They had to have a recount in both the governor and the senatorial race. But here's the interesting thing. Four million on each side, eight million total voters. There are 13.5 million voters in Florida. Hmm. Where are the rest? People in between. And by the way, there are two million people who are who are eligible to be registered and are not registered even. And okay, some of them might be just off the grid. Some of them might be crazy. I mean, I don't know what they are. But I would argue that half the, you know, essentially half the state of Florida is just saying, I don't buy any of this stuff anymore. I think you're both terrible. I can't stand it. And my vote means nothing. And I've been so diminished. I am checking out. That I think is terrible. I think that is terrible. So what are we doing to make, you know, functional government possible again? The thing is, people say, well, who do I blame? I mean, we can blame, you know, somebody wants to blame George Soros, it must be those evil liberals. Somebody wants to blame Charles Koch, it must be that evil, you know, right-wing guys. It's a secret cabal and it's dark money. But at the end of the day, we got to look in the mirror. We own this. We own this. This is we the people. It's not some theoretical other people. This is us. This is our communities, our lives, and we have ceded control. And I think it's a damn shame. So I think it's time that we had a wake up. I mean, it's a great opportunity as well as a crisis. But oh, my gosh, the stakes are high. The stakes are really high. The greatest political experiment in history is at risk. It's yeah. at risk. Well, there's this, uh, just, you're asking how this can happen, but I think there's this phenomenon, uh, you've heard of it before, it's called boiling the frog. Yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah. you put a frog in the water and you turn up the temperature very, very slowly and he doesn't know the difference <laughs> until he finally succumbs to it. And I think a lot of that has happened in this country too. Uh, I, I just remember, I, I'm showing my age here, but I was uh, in high school and college back in the 70s and 80s. And we used to hear conservative radio back then and think it was more of a, a phenomenon that was going to go away soon, but it just got worse and worse over time. And over time, what I find out is that, uh, of course, now it's exacerbated with the uh, with the internet, but uh, on, even on radio back then, you have a lot of people that uh, I would say they they basically lie by telling the truth. They tell enough of the truth that you don't really realize you're slipping something in there, and then there's 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 uh, disinformation coming out. And I think there is a good commercial reason for that because there's money behind it. People are listening more; it gets more people listening to the radio. The more people listen, the more the sponsors jump on board, and this thing just feeds itself over a long period of time. And um, next thing you know. Yeah, we could we could you know blame us for being complacent all these years, but on the other hand, it's it's nothing that's happened very suddenly. It's happened over several decades, and here we are. It's true. There's a so there's a slow incremental assault on norms, and you know it's amazing. You know, it's like you could say some dirty word, you know, a thousand times fast, and it just loses all of its meaning. It has no context anymore. And I think also people out of just self preservation have begun to check out. They're just saying, look, there's no role for me at this table. What the hell am I supposed to do? It's very interesting. Look at young people. You know, if you go to, when I go to talk to college groups, I mean, people are just like, man, look, on a, on a weekend, I can go work for Habitat for Humanity. I can nail, you know, some nails. I can saw some wood. I can help put up a house or I can give some money to Greenpeace or a whale or whatever it is I'm interested in. And it's very discreet, very specific. But when you ask them to engage in this larger thing, they're thinking, how am I supposed to deal with, you know, war, immigration, nuclear threat, the European issue, global currency, the reserve currency, the emergence of China, Huawei, you know, I mean, it's like they just completely melt down and go back to what they were doing, right? Because it's very right. hard to have a thing. But I also, you know, I also tell the young people, I say, look, you guys are the Twitter generation. I mean, you took down a government in Egypt. 
you should be at this table. This is your future we've mortgaged. This national debt issue is your problem. This generation has screwed this up to a fairly well, and some of us are working very hard to try to remedy that. But boy, now more than ever, uh, you know, we should engage young people. And there's some groups that are doing this. You know, the Millennial Action Project is good. You know, politicians under 40 who are at state level and not federal, you know, they still have to solve problems in their community. They can't be ideologues. There's no room for ideologues at that level. They've got to actually get stuff done. They got to fill the potholes. You know, they got to get they got to get things to actually work. They don't get to hide behind the sort of ideological nonsense that characterizes the federal discussion. And you're right, the insidiousness of the long-term boiling is that this is part of what social media has done. It's just made it this constant incrementalism of diet where you no longer know what the hell is what, right? So people are trying to sort through all that. And in the meantime, they still got to go back. It was interesting. You know, if you've ever been to a Rotary Club, it's fascinating. I was in Warren, Ohio this year. And this is a town that just got hurt really badly. I mean, they've lost 15,000 jobs, but you've got 40,000 people in a community that used to have 65,000. And it's difficult. It's a hard time. But I walk into this community that's been really hurt and damaged, and they're trying to make sense of it all and where they fit in the new American order. And it's not so easy to sort out. And they open up with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag to the Republic for which it stands, right? It's amazing, those words, to the Republic for which it stands. They sing, my country, tis of thee, which I don't know, I mean, I haven't heard that since I was in grade school. And then they open up with what they call the four-way test. Is it the truth? Is it fair for all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? Those are their four questions. And I'm thinking to myself, we should open up every congressional session with those four questions. <laughs> but we don't do that. Right. Right? Is it the truth? Is it fair? Is it goodwill? Is it beneficial? Holy moly. I mean, this isn't I mean, this isn't rocket science. Right. We don't need to reinvent new constitutions. Right. <laughs> we, well, a lot of businesses open up uh, their meetings by asking those very similar type questions. Absolutely. So it should be. Second nature for us. Well, you would think so. And then, you know, here, I mean, like I was a member of the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable recently put out their great statement of principles about we have more than just one kind of shareholder. You know, we have a broader definition. I mean, that's great. But it, in some ways, you know, there's a group that says, geez, why, why isn't that just a statement of the obvious? Why does that actually have to be like special? I mean, there was a time when that wasn't even a question that every CEO living in a global environment didn't have to worry about the next hedge fund that was going to attack, you know, put on a proxy fight, or they had to worry about just short-term earnings. They did have a sense of stewardship. They did have a sense that if I built a great corporation, it was because I had great public education to staff my thing. I had the benefit of the rule of law that allowed me to compete in this country and in the world. There were things that were a function of the American institutional success that allowed my enterprise to succeed. That was the great magic of the capitalism. But if it ends up just being, you know, a guy flying around a corporate jet or a couple of tech billionaires who've got a ranch in New Zealand, and they sort of think that they were divinely invented and America had nothing to do with the success, then you've got a much deeper cultural problem because now you're destroying the trust, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's why do people hate elites? I mean, there are plenty of parents out there who would love to have their kid grow up and be Bill Gates. What an amazing person. Look what he's done in the world. But they don't like it when the elite thinks they're better than them, lectures them, shames them, or goes into a little room, figures out all the problem, and then sends it to him in a memo and says, get in line. That they don't like. They're sick of that. 
The elites have failed in that sense. So instead of having high regard for our leaders or whether they be business or whether they be political, there's a great deal of contempt about the role of leadership in this country. And it's well-earned, that contempt, right? And the only way you displace that is if people start modeling different behavior. If business people, CEOs, were standing up and talking about the future of capitalism and all the great things that capitalism did, and that the inequality is the great moral threat of our time, and that the and the being able to deliver on the American promise of a better future is a deeply profound moral imperative that we should all be thinking about. And inequality is not just about wages, it's about opportunity and education and participate in the social contract. And that business leaders ought to be be talking about that and they should be enunciating why it's so important to be part of that. There are not so many opportunities to do that and not so many boards or CEOs get to think about that because they're running around the world trying to compete. Well, and we know our political class certainly isn't talking in those terms either. So no wonder people are frustrated. I would just like to think that if you can give citizens a nomenclature that they can use, if you can see them, they're feeling politically homeless, but if you say, I found you lost in the desert out there, I probably understand how you feel, and there's a way to come home. There's a way to come back to your country, and you can own it. And the promise and all of the the promise and hope and potential of this great political experiment is still ahead of us. It is not over. You are part of it and you can have a piece of it. And it's not kumbaya sitting around all being best friends. We can fight like cats and dogs. We can have really robust differences on many, many things. But at the end of the day, collectively, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We are better as a transcendent tribe of Americans than we are just fractionated and driven into our respective corners where all we've been, we've been so diminished that all we have left is our singular identities because the larger identities betrayed us. Shame on us. Shame on all of us. What a crime. What a crime that would be. So, yeah. you know, I think we got a lot of work to do, but let's go do it. I mean, like, you know, if not now, when, right? I mean. Well, I think if not now, it's never going to happen. I, I would say we're at, a, we're at an inflection point. But, you know, essentially people say, well, you know, <laughs> You know, where's the address? I mean, there's a Wendell, I don't know whether you know the poet Wendell Berry, but there's a great poem by Wendell Berry called Wild Geese. And he ends that poem by saying, and we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. It's not somewhere else, right? It's not some other place. It's right here. We have the power to do this. And the thing is, we've been led to believe we don't. So I'm a believer that the great American experience is there. I think people can handle the truth. I think they want to be treated like adults. I think they want a way back into the system that has not been so diminished and into this ridiculous, vapid, cheap clarity that passes for political discourse. And I think they want to be engaged and they want their country back. So I think we should do that. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're also making a point here that the engagement actually begins locally, conversations with people locally. Absolutely. Because where do things get solved? At your right. PDA, in your community, at your civic center, things have to be done. If the pipe breaks, you've got to fix it. If the road washes out, you got to get it done. Right? I mean, this is just such basic stuff. And it doesn't start with, did you vote for Hillary or Donald? That's not right. how those conversations start, Right. And so I think that we so cheapen our political discourse, and that is a shame. And I think most people instinctively know it's all nonsense, and yep. they do have a chance to help. So let's let's give them a chance to do it nationally. That's uh, 
break down the barriers between the tribes. You know, one thing that's a, one final thought about this too is I find it interesting. Um, you know, my wife is she's uh, from the Netherlands, and so she there's this sort of cultural thing going on when she comes to America and see how sees how everybody lives here. And one interesting thing she brought to mind was, you know, when you go to a baseball game uh, before the game starts, she always wants to see the national anthem. She wants to take part in that, and and the symbolism there is that at the end of the day, we might be supporting different baseball teams. And I'm speaking more metaphorically too. We might be supporting different baseball teams out there, but you know, before the game starts, we all come together and say, Hey, we're all one nation to begin with. We're all one people. And that's a, it's a very warming sort of sort of thought that she's sort of turned me on to. To me, it's like it's automatic. Of course, you go to the ball game, you 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 know, sing the national anthem, you put your hand over your heart, and and but now I'm beginning to think about those things a little bit more and think, you know, this is more than just tradition. This is actually a statement of us being all on the same team. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I'm a martial artist, and they have a concept in the martial arts called shashin, which means beginner's mind. And it basically means that you always have to go back to first principles because the very first thing you learn when you come into a place of training, a dojo to do karate, you're really starting at the beginning. You have no baggage. And what happens is as you get more experience and you grow up and you finally get things like a black belt, you know, in karate or whatever, a black belt is not an end. It's a beginning. It means you now know enough to be taught and you have a responsibility as the senior ranking person to be a steward of that learning and that teaching to your student. And so they have a, the symbol is of a kanji for fire that's upside down. And, and if you turn it upside down, it's like a match. If you light a match and you hold it up normally, it burns out. If you turn it upside down, it has this hunger. It burns the entire match, right? So the symbolism of the inverted kanji is we must have our beginner's mind. We must be committed to this constant learning, constant reinvention. And when you think about the symbols of America, if we no longer teach those, if we're no longer stewards of those values, if we don't have history departments actually giving people a sense of what those symbols mean, then they just become songs, no longer symbols, right? So the national anthem was exactly that. It was a great symbolic sense of our unity. And it wasn't some, you know, uh, chess beating jingoistic version of the American dominance. It had to do with the faith in our common humanity and our common experiment. And so I think it's important to celebrate those things and people want them. And unfortunately it becomes very cynical because we don't teach that stuff. So I'm, I'm with your wife. I think those are deeply moving things. And that's why I was so struck when I went into this place in Warren, Ohio, they're singing my country tis of thee. I mean, you know, and so what is that crying out for? It's saying, see me, please see me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. We all want to be seen in our lives. Yeah but you've got a system of indifference and callousness, then those things get cheapened and they become politically out of It's like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when did the flag or patriotism or the national anthem become the property of a party? It's not, it's ours, right? It's very interesting. If you go to Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is the museum that Alice Walton built of the Walton family, you walk into the exhibits. It's the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. When you first walk in, there's a huge, uh, piece of art that is we the people, the calligraphy of the, of the opening of the Constitution of the United States, we the people, that old calligraphy. And it's made up of a thousand different colored shoestrings and it hangs on the wall. We the people. It's by an artist named Nardi. And 20 feet away, right across from it, is the Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington. Hmm. And Alice Walton has arranged for 100,000 kids a year to go through that museum to talk about history, to talk about our symbols to talk about our shared experiment.
This is remarkable. You know, you've got all sorts of things that are wonderful going on in this country that celebrate every good thing. But boy, turn on a television and you want to just blow your brains out because it's just so much nonsense being beamed at you when most of us are observing the rituals of life every single day. I guarantee most of your day was not spent today running people through ideological litmus tests. It was probably solving a problem. And part of your day is talking to me. You know, you're you're just doing your thing. But it didn't start with who I voted for. <laughs> it started yeah. with we're in service of this larger experiment and it is in dire need of care and tending and attention. So let's pay attention. Let's just start by paying attention and and actually reasserting ourselves. I, you know, you know, it's interesting. If you like if you think about the end of T.S. Eliot's uh, four quartets, uh, the last quartet is called Little Gidding. And in the last part of it, he talks about a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And in some ways, the American experiment is very simple. It was all about this commonality. But boy, to make it work, to be really committed to it, to allow this thing to survive another 200 years and another 200 years of that, it's going to cost us everything. We've got to engage. It costs everything to make this work. There's no cheap clarity. It is not easy. It is difficult. The problems are real. We cannot diminish them. But it is a condition of simplicity. And it costs us not less than everything. So I'm a big believer that that that's you know this is not new in the in the history of the world, but boy, we're at risk. And it's and I tell you there are there are very positive changes. You look at some of the things going on even in foundations. I mean, everybody talks about the Koch brothers and all that. Well, you know, right now they've decided to diminish and reduce their partisan activity, and they're focused on problem solving now. So they're one of the largest supporters of addiction programs. They're one of the largest supporters of criminal justice reform. They're one of the largest supporters of gang violence remediation. It's interesting. George Soros and, and Charles Koch, if you could think of two more different people in this American political theater that we watch every day, the two of them put in $50 million to set up the Quincy Foundation in June of this last year, basically to restore something called diplomacy in this country. Charles mm. and George Soros. Wow. Think about that's, it. That's a good contribution. I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary because they believe that the blood and treasure of this great nation is going to be furthered and advanced if we actually begin to see the other out there and understand them. If we think that every hammer should be looking for a nail, we're going to have a problem. But what an interesting convergence of strange bedfellows. That's how bad, that's how at risk the system is, where you've got George Soros and Charles Koch saying, the stakes are much higher than both of us. We've got to leave the guns at the door. This is no longer about the old ideological fight. It's not about partisanship. Both parties are deeply broken. This is about solving problems, and we have a deep duty of care. We have a profound moral imperative to change this. It's interesting. You know, when I was back in my sort of early New York days, in the 80s, I lived in New York City. And my, I lived in the East Village, and my uh, sister uh, was a great fan of a writer named Hortense Kalisher. And she said, hey, why don't you come with me to this reading? So we went to a little coffee house and I'm thinking, OK, whatever, you know. Anyway, Hortense Kalisher was a Barnard graduate, mm -hmm. great woman, great writer. But she walked down on stage with her glasses kind of hanging off her little finger. She had a glass of water. And she was holding a book under her arm, which she was going to read from. She sat down on a stool and she said the following. She said, I've been thinking a lot of late about the idea that some people inhabit revolution, but they never know what it's about. And she says, I don't think we have the right to be reckless or careless with revolution. I think revolution demands a great deal of moral intentionality. If you're going to pick up a placard and march in the parade, you better know why you're there. 
you don't have the right to just show up and not be thinking about it. And I thought, that's a really interesting idea. And I used to use that in my company in town hall meetings all over the world. Know why you're here. Don't just show up and phone it in. Don't, I don't care whether you're the person answering the phone or the CEO of the company. Understand why you're here. What is the intentionality of this particular revolution? And I think that that is what we are engaged in, is in the business of revolution in the most moral sense of that word. Understand why we show up for this great experiment. It is worth showing up for, but we better know why we're here. Because if we don't, we're going to lose it. It will be gone. And what an enormous tragedy that would be. I don't think anybody wants that. I don't think anybody in this country wants that. And I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. So that is a deep thing, you know, and I think that this great American revolution, I, I ran into a guy also, uh, just incidentally, but you talk about education and history. There's a guy named Jim Basker who runs something called the Gilner Lehrman Institute for American History. And he's a remarkable guy. He teaches Enlightenment values at, at Barnard. But this program started with uh, Ron Chernow, who wrote Hamilton, and Lin-Manuel Miranda came to him and said, you know, I don't think history is being taught. Why don't we try to invent a history curriculum and then we'll, we'll end it by participating in a, in a production of Hamilton, which, of course, was a phenomenal success, right? Talking about our founding heritage. So they did it in Title I schools all over this country. They've got 50,000 teachers participating in this program now. And to get into this program as a student, you have to write an original piece of essay or a piece of literature or a piece of music. And he told me about a young woman in Chicago who wrote a song called Washington, a blues piece about Washington crossing the Delaware. And it wasn't, you know, sort of the, the narrative of he's an evil, you know, uh, white slavist. It was in our darkest hour when liberty was at stake, when the entire future of this fragile experiment was under siege, he made it with courage across this dark water. And she was singing a song about the ghetto and how do you get out? And I'm thinking these values endure. They have the power to uplift all parts of this country. No one should be left out of that story. We're all part of that story. But if you don't teach the story and you don't communicate the story, where does that leave people? Right? Right. So anyway, it seems to me it's a deep issue. It is cultural. It is political. It's economic. It's all those things. Structural reform is very important, but it's only a piece. It's only a piece. We have to do the hard work of healing ourselves. And only then, like Lincoln said, we have to disenthrall ourselves. And only then will we save our country. I think we have an opportunity to do that. It's incredibly exciting. Go all over this country, and I have. I mean, there are people doing unbelievably amazing things, and I would like to see that be our future, not some other future. But it takes work, right? It takes yep. work. I agree. Anyway, so fix us. Fix U.S. It starts with fixing ourselves. We can fix the United States. That's what started the Fix U.S. movement. It started with the debt being a huge, hairy, audacious problem that was difficult to solve and was never going to get solved if we lived in a ridiculous political environment where everything is diminished and filtered through ideological extremes and nobody wants to solve the problem because it's more valuable to keep the problem alive for political ends than it is to solve the damn problem. That is unconscionable. Right. That is unconscionable. So Fix US was started in response to that. Let's go fix our country. And what is the uh, the uh, address for that? So three three seven 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 is the is the text you can go, and it's you know it's fixus.org. I mean, you can go right on to just Google Fix Us. It's right there. Sign up. Fixus.org. <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay. You can be part of that. Uh, you know, you can be. Uh, you know, if you go to uh, actually, I think the website. I'll give it to you. www.fixusnow.org is the full website. Okay. 
That's good. I was just going to ask you that question yeah. too. So and, uh, and if you text it, it's three three seven seven seven, and it'll say, "Hello, would you like to be part of Success?" Yes, that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think we're kind of running out of time right here. I, I just, uh, I'm just sitting in awe listening to everything that you've said. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Mr. Paul Stebbins, who is the uh, uh, part of the Leadership Council of uh, Fix the Debt Campaign. And uh, I really want to thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, Mr. My pleasure, Paul Stebbins. It was a real privilege to be here. And uh, I thank you for what you're doing and providing opportunities for folks like us to have a conversation. I think, uh, I think it's great. Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to help sponsor this podcast directly, get in touch with us through our website at theallianceparty.com. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or a blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of Mr. Paul Stebbins, as well as everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.